0: Uh, We are, if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, or maybe you've uh, been away and you're you're joining us uh, from the last couple of weeks, we just started a new series through the book of Philippians uh, called uh, uh, What Lies Ahead, and it's uh, a letter from Paul to a church in Philippi about what it means to follow Christ and how following Christ actually means coming fully alive Together by abiding in something or someone greater than yourself. This is a book about discipleship through every sphere of life, whether prosperous or uh, whether full of of suffering. Um, And Paul opened this up. We just kind of did an introduction last week through the first few verses. His little greeting there kind of gave us an introduction, which I just gave you. Uh, and we also showed this video by the Bible Project. If you missed that, that is on our Facebook page. You can scroll through and list, uh, watch it. It's about a nine-minute video. It's it's short-ish, but it's a, a wonderful little animated film that just gives you. Uh, thanks. I just saw. I just felt the lights go down. I, my soul is is breathing right now. A uh, little video up on there that uh, kind of gives you a. a An idea of the whole letter. So as we go through it week by week in little parts, you'll have kind of the main theme and thrust of the whole letter. And the little parts will make sense uh, fitting into that that big theme. But right now we're in the second part, uh, and I'm calling this this uh, this particular one today, I'm calling it driven by a greater ambition. And I'm going to read Philippians chapter one, verse 12 through 18. And then I'll pray for us, and we'll dive into the word together and worship him in the midst of it. This is, a, this is what Paul says as he just greeted the church. Now he turns to his own situation, and he says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we open up your word every week. we open up your word for some of us in the mornings too every day perhaps in the evenings perhaps sporadically whenever we can get to it and, and every time it is a it is a, an incredible unparalleled blessing that this this group of people in this room scattered all over town from different spheres of life and influence from different backgrounds and life experiences and families of origin can have this one thing in common. That God speaks. He speaks to us. Whenever we open up your word, we are hearing the voice of God, the power of the Holy Spirit as you moved upon people who penned that which you put on their heart. We believe that it is authoritative and sufficient and able to sanctify us, even as you, our Lord, prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We believe that your written word here, open for us to devour, would be for us like food, that it would nourish our souls. We also pray that you, Christ, the living word, as you promise, are present with us, even as we're studying the written word, we pray that your presence would be here to guide and shape us. It's It's a wonderful blessing, Lord, that we would be able to carve out an hour or two out of our schedules, out of our weeks, out of our normal daily rhythms to come together and to be in the presence of God and to share that in common. So Lord, would your word speak to us? To every person wherever they're from, Lord, we pray that you would have that word, that Rhema word of life, specifically for that person. Cover my mistakes, Lord, you know how I am. I ask for grace that the Spirit would speak through me and even in spite of me to your people whom you so dearly love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Probably, uh, if you didn't see or read, the movie and the book that came out several years ago, uh, you probably heard or felt its furor. A uh, book about uh, Louis Zamperini, uh, the book and the uh, coinciding movie called Unbroken. Uh, the novel that first came out was documenting uh, little, uh, an Italian American man uh, from his childhood all the way um, to his old age, and specifically focusing on what a difficult, hard life that Zamperini had. If you know anything about the story, it's basically, uh, it starts with him being an uh, an Olympic runner, having his dreams dashed, never getting to go to the Olympics. Instead of going to the Olympics for gold, he goes to World War II instead to fight. And from there on, it's just trial after trial, everything from a month stranded at sea, fighting off sharks and starving to POW camps and torture and the whole like and this entire story is pretty weighty uh, as it's you're constantly being barraged by affliction and hardship and difficulty and suffering in this this poor man's life yet the last thing that you get as you're reading this book is that he's a poor man and you see over time even from from his childhood this driven persistence to make it through as you, uh, as you hear the story and as you watch the movie, or, or if, even if you don't, I'll just tell you right now, uh, he's just constantly being kept alive by a glimmer of hope, by a drivenness. Maybe in the initial stages, it's a stubbornness just for the sake of being stubborn. But over time, it, it grows and flowers into something else. He, he, wants, he wants to stay alive. He wants to defeat the enemy. He wants to make it to the finish line. And he does. He does. If you can understand a story like that, you can understand some of the verses that we just read. There's a lot going on here, but I think the point here is rather simple. And I think it's relatable to most of our lives in this building, if not all of us. And as we go through it, I just want to look at about three things. One, I want you to see in Paul something you might not have experienced, imprisonment but a, a relatable situation. I then want, I want to show you something that might motivate you to persevere through a situation like that. And third, I want to show you where to find the power to sustain you as you do. A relatable situation, what can motivate you to persevere, and the power to sustain you the rest of the way. Here's what I mean by a relatable situation. All of us in this room have at one time or another been faced with a difficult situation, Right? Unless you live in a bubble where food is delivered to you, you probably in your life have faced something that was daunting or difficult, and maybe even you're facing that right now. Maybe you're sitting in here, maybe the, 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 it was the only thing that you could do to roll out of bed this morning and show up to a, a gathering of other Christians. Maybe as you were doing it, you were like, I've got so much on my mind. I am dealing with so much stuff. The last thing that I want to do right now is be social. Perhaps you're being faced with a difficult situation. I want, before I talk about yours... I want us briefly to talk about Paul's, and then we'll talk about yours. And two things that come up up with Paul. One is imprisonment in verse 13. When it says that he was imprisoned, you know, in verse 13, he says, It it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's likely speaking about the praetorium guard. This is uh, Caesar's personal bodyguard. Uh, It's been said that Caesar's personal bodyguard numbered in uh, in at around 9,000 soldiers. So when we say that uh, Paul was under lock and key by the the, uh, imperial guard, we're saying that he was probably under Caesar's own personal bodyguard in Rome. Uh, Most people think that he's in Rome writing this book to the church in Philippi. So under the control and the brutality of 9,000 Roman soldiers and all that comes along with it. Not the best day in the world. But it gets even worse, especially for Paul. You see, Paul is an itinerant apostle. He wrote, actually, to uh, the letter to the Romans that his his personal ambition was to preach the gospel where it, it has never been preached before. He is a pioneer in the truest sense of the word. He's an apostle in the truest sense of the word. His heart moves and breathes by going to places where nobody else has gone. We would call that reaching the unreached, right? Going to the frontiers in the world where nobody else has gone. He, he, his heart burns for that. And right now, he's grounded and chained, not only in a city that's already heard the gospel, there's a thriving church there that he's, he's been writing to, but He also can't get out of the building. He's constantly chained to Roman guards. I want you to think about Paul, who is an itinerant apostle being grounded and chained, and his dreams being completely unrealized. I think it was in the the book, To the Romans, that he stated that his ultimate goal was not to land in Rome. It was to go to Spain. Spain. So Paul already has his five-year plan set out. He's like, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. I'm going to preach to the Jews. I'm going to preach to all y'all. I'm going to go to Rome, but I'm not even going to stop to Rome because there's people already doing the work there. I want to go places where nobody's been. I'm going to go all the way to Spain, eat Spanish rice and preach the gospel. He never makes it. History tells us that he probably dies in custody with Caesar. Speaking of dreams being unrealized, do you ever feel that way? Like your dreams have been unrealized? Do you ever find yourself asking the Lord, "This, this isn't the way that I thought things would turn out. I've been following you, I've been seeking first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, blah, 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 blah. And it's been five years. Things have not been turning out the way that I thought they would turn out for a Christian that's been following Jesus. It is hard and difficult. And I hate it. And I'm broken inside. And I just want to give up. You might have a little taste of what Paul is feeling right now. It's not just imprisonment, but to add salt to the wound, which perhaps you've also felt, is affliction. It's not that he's just in prison. It's that he's being afflicted while he's in prison. So to set the scene, there is already a church, and I I don't mean like a local church, but a a body of believers spread throughout Rome, maybe made up of local churches, and they're preaching the gospel. They're evangelizing. They're living uh, lives of righteousness and ministering to the poor and to their neighbor. And some are preaching, even though Paul is in prison, and they're doing a great job. And, and yet, in verse 15, look at what he says. Some are preaching Christ from a, a place of envy and rivalry. And some are preaching from goodwill. Now, when he says this, you know, I, I don't think that Paul is saying, there's people in Rome who are, are you know, while I'm in prison, they're preaching a false gospel or they're, they're saying wrong things about Christ or they're, they're getting it incorrect I don't think he's speaking about people make, you know, uh, spreading heresy or, or starting cults. Otherwise, I think Paul probably would have addressed it. If you've ever tried to get through the book of Galatians uh, or Corinthians, you see that Paul just doesn't mince words when he's dealing with people who, who try to distort the beauty and simplicity of the gospel. Not only that, but in verse 14, he's, he's actually calling these people with ill motives, his brothers and sisters. So these are fellow Christians in the church in Rome who are preaching. Some of them are preaching because they're encouraged by Paul. Others are preaching not because necessarily they believe it, not because it's taken a a hold and a root in their heart, but they're just trying to jab Paul. And I I don't know quite what their goal is here, I know that in verse 17, it says uh, Paul says, they're not doing it sincerely. That, that probably means that they're not talking about Christ because of their, their deep, profound love for Christ, but they're trying to afflict Paul in prison. He's in prison, they're trying to just goad him. I don't quite know how, but perhaps they're, they're making jabs at Paul in their preaching. So they're not saying anything wrong, they're proclaiming Christ, they're, they're preaching the gospel, but... Maybe in doing so, they're jabbing at Paul. I could have almost imagine, this is just speculation, but I could imagine that they're pointing out that he's in prison. Certainly people throughout Philippians and the letter to Romans and others bring this up. They constantly think, and he's always trying to correct this, that because Paul is suffering, he must not be faithful to God. That was a huge understanding in that day. It's a huge understanding for many people today, that if we obey God, we will be prosperous monetarily. We will not suffer. Life will be easy and we'll have our way. And that was the same thing in the first century. I, I could imagine some people speaking to others, other Christians, saying, See, Paul's been preaching, but look, look at where that's got him. And I can't even believe, like, the guy's not even smart. He appealed to, to, to Caesar, what do you think that was going to lead him to? Well, now he's in prison sitting there and he can't, he can't expand his ministry. He can't do anything. Fat lot of good his gospel did him. I don't know if that's what's happening. That seems to be something uh, that might happen. But we, we can say this was a, a malicious treatment of Paul. He's not just in prison, but he's being kicked by fellow believers while he's down. You ever feel that way? You feel while you're struggling through life, maybe it's dreams unrealized, maybe it's physical, emotional sickness, whatever it is. You also feel lonely, kicked in the back, jabbed by people that should have your back. If there's anything we can get from this section of Scripture is that following Jesus, contrary to popular opinions, is not always comfortable. You're not promised a comfortable life by following Jesus. Jesus himself actually tells us that all who want to uh, live uh, righteous lives will encounter persecution. Uh, Excuse me, I think that was Paul to Timothy. Jesus himself says that in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. But in this life you will have trouble. If it came for me, don't expect that my students, Jesus would say, are going to be exempt from that. This, this is a, a faith and a religion of the cross, where the cross precedes the glory, where, where Christ says to his disciples, anyone who wants to follow me must take up the, the, the execution rack. In other words, they must be prepared to die to their own uh, ambitions and desires, and to have those be supplanted by my ambitions and desires. It ends up becoming the most beautiful thing that you've ever lived. But initially, it's, it's hard. Following Jesus isn't always comfortable, and the question may arise, maybe you're going through that right now, maybe you've been attending church, and you're like, I've been going to church every Sunday for three weeks, why hasn't my life changed? Why haven't I got a job? A girlfriend? You know, it's like, it's, oh, why can't I retire? You know, all of the questions that come up. I thought following Jesus was going to make things easier. Maybe it's making things harder. Good job. That's how it works. The question that we need to ask with Jesus warning, all who desire to follow me, who are so compelled by their vision of me, that they're willing, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> Thought it was hail coming into the building. Was that from the sky? Or Was that like a bottle cap? Never mind. Tangent. <laughs> The the question probably every Christian in the building eventually faces at a certain point in their walk is this is harder than I thought. How do I make it? I want to give you two things from Paul that will help you make it it's motivation and it's power. The same thing that could cause a little Italian American to undergo torture and sharks and abandonment is not quite yet supernatural, we'll get to that in a moment, but it's that thing, whether it's Louis Zamperini or a single stay-at-home mom or me, we need to be motivated by something greater than our circumstances. Something we, what we see in Paul right now is him being moved by a greater ambition. What we see through all the saints, what we see through secular people even as well, men and women that are moved to go through difficult situations is something that is pulling them to the finish line. For Paul, he says in verse uh, 12, everything that has happened to me here has really helped to spread the good news. That's from the uh, NLT version, the the one I'm reading, ESV, says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Listen to that. The first thing on Paul's mind is not, you guys, pen pals, you you guys like, following Jesus is terrible. He's like, I'm suffering, and it is all going wonderfully for Christ. Christ. How do you get to that point? Everything that has happened. Listen to me, Philippi. Listen to me, Reality Santa Barbara. Everything that has happened to me, including imprisonment and malicious treatment, is actually serving to spread the good news. Isn't that great? Paul has a different way of assessing difficult situations. How does he view imprisonment right now? And compare that to how I might view imprisonment if I were there. Thank God for the freedoms that we do have where we can gather together like this without fear of prison. But we have our own fears and we have our own sense of hardship and difficulty difficulty that, that threatens to quell our desire to follow Christ. But for Paul, what was it? He looked at his imprisonment and he expressed that it was actually causing the gospel to go out to people that otherwise would never have gotten access to it. Paul says, me being in prison is actually serving to advance the gospel. I am a preacher. Paul is a preacher. Like, that's what I do. But there's certain people, like 9,000 people in Caesar's court, who never would have heard this unless I was in chains. And it's because of my chains that Jesus is being introduced to a bunch of different people. You have to ask yourself, when you're going through a difficult time, a great practice, I try to do this myself, is to say, what is, you know, what is God doing right now that I'm not seeing? Because he's always doing something. Something. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, many of you know it. God causes all things to work together. All things. Not some things, not a few things, not his things. All things, both good and bad. To work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is in control of history, environments, and situations. And even though we don't see it, he is working supernaturally for his own eternal purpose, not only in your life, but in everyone around you. Good question to ask when you're going through something that you don't like, is what is God doing that I can't see right now? And by asking yourself that question and and trying to look, you're actually training yourself. It's like a spiritual discipline. You're training yourself to see God in those areas And as you begin to do that over and over, you grow in an awareness of God's presence. But here's the thing, not just an awareness of God's presence during worship or in prosperity or affluence when it's easy to see him active in your life, you're training yourself to see him active in the difficulties as well. What is God doing that I might not see? The second thing. That was happening in Paul's life was the affliction and and Paul had a different way of viewing that as well. He said, Hey, I know people are out there, they're 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 using their platform to slime my reputation and they're doing it out of a sense of envy and rivalry, but I don't care. They're preaching about Jesus. If my reputation has to suffer so that Jesus is elevated, Christ is being proclaimed, verse 18. This is, this is incredible. If I can wrap up this little section, I'd say that Paul's perspective of everything, his motivation for getting through sufferings of all different kinds, is that it's truly uh, putting, uh, speaking in, in his shoes, if I can. It's not about me, it's not about my discomfort, and it's not about my rep- reputation. I'm in prison, I'm uncomfortable. People are sliming my reputation but it's not about either of those things. And so I don't care if I lose them. I have a deeper aspiration of something that is far more valuable to me than my comfort and reputation, is Christ resurrected and his expanding kingdom. I can wrap my heart around that. As long as that is moving forward, I'm gonna be okay. You can get through a lot when you're driven by something greater than your own circumstances. You can actually get through a lot in this life when you are driven by something greater than yourself. Your comfort, your security, your personal ambitions and desires, your reputation, your wants and needs, all of which are important and that God cares about. But you can get through a lot when you have something deeper than those things. For Paul, it was Jesus and his expanding kingdom. I'll bet if you were to ask that question the next time you were in a in a situation that was difficult for you, it wouldn't change your world overnight. It wouldn't necessarily make you feel better about what's happening, but it would start to change and move and uh, possibly plant a seed within your heart of being motivated to endure. As you begin to ask yourself that question, what is God doing right now? I love... uh, that verse in Genesis uh, chapter fifty, verse twenty, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, speaking of an ancient version of uh, Louis Zamperini, Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, envious rivalrous, sell him into slavery. He gets put in prison. He's constantly berated, uh, abused, and lied about. Uh, falls, uh, moves from his son. Uh, excuse me, his father's favorite son with all of the privilege that comes with it to being a slave and a prisoner. And finally, God elevates him to the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, which was the world power at that time. And in that conversation, you just read the story. It's it's so good. He finally faces his brothers. Now, if I were facing my brothers and I was the second in command of all of Egypt, I would have had so much fun with that. I would have messed with him so bad. And he kind of does. But eventually he forgives them, brings them to his table, dines with them, and they are baffled. He said, why, why are you treating us like this? We were so bad to you. We were evil to you. We tried to hurt you and harm you. And he responds by saying, and imagine Joseph's goggles, the gospel goggles, that have given him a different perspective. He says in Genesis fifty twenty, you, yeah, you were terrible. You intended to harm me, but God, God intended your harm for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph being in that special position uh, to save Egypt from a, a huge famine. So it wasn't that the suffering wasn't validated or that it wasn't awful and didn't hurt and wasn't unpleasant. It was very much there. But Joseph sees in retrospect, God actually worked in that to get me to where I am today. I'm so glad that I persevered. Here's another question you could ask. Not just what is God doing in this difficulty around me, but personally, how is, how is the goodness of God at work in this difficult situation? Those are two good questions to ask. One, how is God at work in this situation? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? Two, how is the goodness of God at work? We can so easily fall prey to cynicism and complaining and darkened hearts and resentment and bitterness and grudges when things don't go our way. And that forms the way that we think. We can reform the way that we think by asking ourselves in difficulties, I believe that God is good. He never changes. So how is he being good right now? Start to do that continually. You will reform the way that you think about God, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about your situation. I'm almost positive that that's what Paul did because at the end of this very book, he says to people that are following after him to follow Christ, Think about that which is good and lovely and honest and true and excellent and worthy of praise. As you do those things, the God of peace will be with you. How is the goodness of God at work? Just a last comment about this. What's astounding, because here's where we've gone so far, just making sure everyone's tracking. We've seen a very difficult situation, imprisonment and affliction, For you, maybe unrealized dreams and malicious intent. Maybe something different. But then we've also seen something in Paul that has driven his ambition to move through those difficult situations. That's all we've seen. We haven't uncovered how he's able to do that yet, except that he is moved by uh, the kingdom of God and by Christ. What's astounding here to me is not that God can take hardship like we see in Joseph's life, or Paul's life, or even in our lives, and turn it into something good, what's astounding to me is that Paul was so swept up by God's purposes that imprisonment itself brought him joy. And I'm not saying he's some weird kind of animal that's like, I love prison, and I love being beaten, and I just more of that, you know? It's still awful. It's not a pleasant experience, It's not that he's reveling in the imprisonment or in the difficulty. It's that underlying those things, there is a joy that is moving him. We would expect God to be able to take anything going on in our lives and turn it around for good. Turn it around for his purpose. What is exceptional about this and what is available to you and me is that as God is doing that, he can sweep us up into his Purposes in such a way that even the things that we're going through might feel less bad than they used to. My question to you is if you could see God working, would we rejoice in prison? Would we rejoice in mobs of people trying to ruin our reputation? Would you rejoice in your gifts and calling being put on hold and things not working out the way that you thought? In the waiting periods, in the physical sickness, in the loss of loved ones, in the betrayals, in the hurt feelings, in the broken relationships? Would you, in the middle of that stuff, be able to say, I am rejoicing in the Lord? Look at what Paul says in that last verse. Because Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. That doesn't just happen you might be able to get to a point where you are motivated to endure, like Zamperini. But you know what uh, his biographer said of him as he was freed from a POW camp after uh, World War II, is that he persevered and his life, he made it through to the end of his life, but he was haunted with hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness. Oh yeah, he made it to the finish line, angry and jacked up. He wouldn't always stay that way something would happen to Louis uh, Louis as well where that hate would be replaced. Uh, It was said that he, uh, later on in history, he would actually send a letter to one of his worst tormentors in that POW camp who went by the nickname The Bird. The one who had it out for Louis. And he wrote to him, you know, I used to hate you. This is after Louis got born again and saved and the love of God filled his heart, he says to him, but, that, but love has replaced the hate that I had for you, and I forgive you. We might be able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make it through difficult situations once, two times, or three times, but eventually all of us are going to burn out. What we see in Paul is not just a lifting up by the bootstraps, but, and this is my last point, a deep inner life. You don't just want a motivation to get you through difficult times as a Christian. You also want power to sustain you through those times. And if you read enough of Paul, you will see that he had not just a bunch of religious skills, not just a bunch of uh, knowledge, cognitive knowledge and theology Not just a bunch of external practices. He had a deep, rich inner life that would cause him to say in the middle of prison, I will rejoice. Paul seemed to be more moved by Jesus himself and the advancement of Jesus' kingdom than even his own comfort, reputation, or personal successes. How do you get to that point? Jesus said, That the power of the kingdom of heaven has to bear, come to bear, upon the inner life of every single human being. You can't just siphon this up and try harder. You must be born again, and the power of heaven must be birthed in your heart and change you from the inside out. The gospel, as we talked about last week, is more than just the forgiveness of your sins, It includes that, but it's far more broad. If I could rephrase what I said last week, it's that a different quality of life is now available to each of you because of the kingdom of heaven. A different way of living and a different way of being. You don't have to be bitter anymore, you don't have to be enslaved anymore. You don't have to be knotted up in personal pain and sorrow anymore. You don't have to be enslaved to addictions anymore. You don't have to be tripped up by your own personal temptations. Your life doesn't have to be dictated by what people around you think about you. You don't have to be completely destroyed by what other people think about you. A different quality of life has been made available to anyone who puts their faith in Christ as the kingdom of God comes to bear upon individual hearts by belief in the Son of God. And that's what Paul has. He has a different quality of life so that he can be rotting in a prison and still have the joy of the Lord. You know what that, uh, that quality of life is of the kingdom? Paul described it as the fruit of the Spirit. Not the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. These are not actions and behaviors. These are a way of being. That's the gift of the kingdom, is that you can have a love. Not be loving, although that will flow out of who you are, but to have love. To experience joy, to experience peace and goodness and kindness and self control. Right now, it seems like Paul is sitting in the middle of a little prison under Roman guard, experiencing the joy of the Spirit. You can't always change your situation, and following Jesus isn't necessarily going to change your situation or your environment or your belongings, or how much money you have, or how easy life is. But you can allow the Lord to begin to slowly change the inner quality of your own life so that it is unaffected by the outward. You get to that place, you can do just about anything. This only happens by the indwelling presence of Christ In your heart. It only happens by Christ in you and by you learning, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, to do all that Christ commanded. Christ in you forming everything about you. That's what that means. Paul would say it in a different way. He would say in Philippians chapter 4 I've learned to be prosperous, I've learned to be poor, I've learned to eat a lot of food, I've learned to go hungry. I've learned the secret to make it through life, regardless of what my circumstances are. And that secret is, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you see that language? That inner life of Jesus Christ in Paul informing how he lives. It seems like Paul has been abiding in the life of Jesus for so long He's able to view almost anything that comes his way through his relationship to Christ. It seems like Paul's understanding of the world around him has been so steep in abiding life in Christ that even suffering stimulates a deep joy in him. Not to belittle our pain or our suffering, our setbacks. Not even to tell you to put on a happy face and to pretend to rejoice in it. We see in the Psalms that we are also supposed to grieve, which is a healthy part of the Christian life. It's in that grief we have a joy that will get us through it. Do you know what that joy is? Have you experienced it, and do you know it? If you've never tried this, maybe your only concept of Christianity is to show up to a church building And do the thing. Or maybe it's uh, read my Bible and pray every day. Or maybe it's something like that. It's a list of things to do. I, I would love to just shift the way you think about following Jesus. To be more about him than what you're doing. It might involve things that we do to be with him. But I'd love to just shift your perception of the Christian life more onto Jesus than onto your external behaviors right now. Amen. I want to give you two things. If you're going through a difficult circumstance right now, or even if you're not, you will, right? How to be prepared for that. I, want to, I just want to give you two things. This is not an exhaustive list of everything in the whole Bible. I just want to give you two things. If Paul is right, and then it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians chapter one, that strengthens us to withstand anything in our lives, Philippians chapter four, verse 13, then we have to, brothers and sisters, we have to. We have to come to terms with with what it means to abide in him. There can be no other thing in the busyness of our schedules or our lives, even in our spirituality, that usurps this. We have to be people that learn how to abide in Christ. He said that this would mark mark discipleships, that I am the tree, you are the branches, you must abide in me and I in you, and then you will bear fruit. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, I think it is, it says that he appointed disciples. First, he called people that he desired. Don't you love that? Jesus calls people that he desires. I want all the believers and disciples of Christ in the room to let that sink in. You are right now called because you are desired. Yeah. And after that line, he says, and then he appointed his 12 disciples that they might be with him. And then, then, he would send them out to cast demons and proclaim the gospel. Oh, you're going to do all of that stuff, church. You're going to see the kingdom of God advancing. And I pray that you would see demons being kicked out and evicted. And the poor fed and the blind seeing. Homes being put back together and marriages renewed and singleness being given back its dignity. All of that stuff. But first... He calls you to be with him. So speaking of abiding, I want to make this as simple as possible. I would love if you would join me during this week and maybe for the rest of your life to do what Jesus did and what Jesus called all of his disciples to do. It's there if you read it. Read the Gospels. He went into periods of solitude and silence. That's it. One of our first One of our our first inclinations when we're following Jesus is maybe to open up the Bible. And we have to do that. We must be believers of the Word. But often our minds and our souls and hearts are so knotted up in our environments and circumstances and broken relationships that even when we open up the Bible, we are filling the Word that we read through our perceptions, through our lens, through our junk. Have you noticed that Jesus always takes time to go up onto a mountain and pray? Have you noticed that before he ever did anything to work for the kingdom of God, he spent some time in obscurity, being tempted by the devil in the wilderness? Did you notice that before Paul did anything, he spent three years in Arabia in obscurity, not doing anything? I'm not calling you to go to Saudi Arabia for three years. But I am begging you as someone who has tasted and seen the presence of God in times of solitude and silence. He will meet you there. Psalm 62, the psalmist preaches to his own soul, remember? He says, oh, my soul, wait in silence for the Lord, for from him comes your salvation. The crazy thing about solitude and silence is that you can't do anything. You can't say anything. You have nothing to do. And that drives people like us nuts, doesn't it? Because we base our own dignity and integrity and worth based on what we're able to accomplish. And that will be stripped from you when you take a moment just to be in the presence of God. And some of you are asking, and to do what? Nothing. Now, as you try it, if you've never done that before, you know, do little blocks, maybe 10 minutes. And then maybe work your way up to 15 minutes and and 20 minutes. In the mornings, I like to get up before my uh, very extroverted children. Turn on a little lamp. Sit in my chair before I even open up the Bible, before I pray. And just sit there and and intentionally put myself in the presence of God. To do what? Nothing. Just being conscious and aware that Christ is with me and that's enough. And your mind will want to do a bunch of stuff. Oh, I got this to-do list, and oh, I should have sent that email. I forgot. Oh, maybe I'll do it in my time of prayer. I'll just, I'll kind of pray and send that email. Is that okay, God? Yeah, I'm sure it's okay. Or you might even begin to ask him for things. You might open up the Bible like, I need something to stimulate my mind. I'll just read a verse, you know. Just, just sit. And it'll be the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done in your life, and that means it's working. Because God is peeling the surface anxieties in your life in order to get to the deep place. Abiding. That's how we could start. Just do that. There's other things like fasting and memorizing scripture we'll talk about later. Just start there. Just be uncomfortable with Christ. Last thing, I'm going to ask Alex and the, the team to come up. So we don't just abide, we practice We practice who we have become when we have been abiding. Since we're talking about difficulty, I want to give you something to practice in difficulty. And I've kind of been saying this over and over, so this will just be uh, repetitious. But in that season of difficulty, I want you to, to take that moment of silence and be with Christ. And when you feel ready, just begin to ask yourself those questions. God, this is really hard right now. I hate this. but I know that you are good and you are faithful. So how are you being present with me right now? And as you begin to ask him that, you might be able to notice little things. Like I've, I've noticed in difficult situations where I'm angry, you know, like, Oh, I, I was a little slower to be angry right there. That had to be the Lord. Or, Oh, in that difficult conflict, uh, I, I was pretty gracious to that person. That would never happen before. I'm kind of a jerk. Thank you, God. You've been present with me. You're training yourself to see God's presence in the difficulties. Ask yourself that other question too. How is God working in this? And as we begin to train ourselves to abide in his presence and to see how he's working in difficulty, our lives will become shaped around what he's doing, not what we're going through. I really think that's what Paul was doing. And as you step out in faith to do it, God will always commit to his promise to be there with you and for you. But right now, let's just take a few minutes to do what we've been talking about for the last couple minutes and abide. There is no greater gift in heaven and on earth given to humanity than the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus and to be in his presence, free from shame and guilt and threat, to sit there and to enjoy the gift of the Lamb of God that has been slayed for the sins of the world. And he tells us he's present whenever his church gathers. So take that promise to the bank this morning. Heavenly Father, I'm just going to shut up this morning and let you speak. As we sing in faith, take of the sacraments, lie on the carpets, pray together, stand, sit, lie down, kneel, whatever it is our posture causes us to do, speak to us. And may we be formed by your heavenly word. In Jesus' name.